Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. All right, well, this morning we're starting a new series, uh, True Faith. And this morning I wanted to drill into a little bit about what is faith. And so we'll be exploring the concept of faith. And this might, some of what I share this morning might be uh, new for some of us. It might be something that some of us have considered before. And, um, you know, the thing about a sermon series like this is even with six sermons, which we hope to do true faith in, uh, we're not going to cover everything about faith. We're not going to answer all of our questions about faith uh, in even six sermons, much less this first one. So uh, we're going to drill into the concept as much as possible this morning, and then we will spend some time looking at examples throughout a lot of the rest of the series. So... Uh, and many of us uh, have a shared understanding about faith or believing, and um, I'm going to push back on some of those things in this series. And again, when, when I do that, when I push back against things, we always, I always do this as much as possible with humility, uh, knowing that I don't know everything, knowing that I, I don't have it all right. And so uh, if some of these ideas are new or concepts are new and we want to talk about them, more than happy to talk about them. So when we talk about anything in the Bible, or any word really, uh, I think the best place to start is with the definition of those words or that word from the lexicons or the dictionaries. Uh, Because the thing about words is, and those that grew up with the King James, like I grew up reading the King James Bible, um, words, the meaning of the words change over time. And so you might read a word and think, oh, it means this. And then find out, no, actually, 300 years ago, that word meant something different. (laughs) And so that's why I no longer read the King James. So that's one of the reasons why I no longer read the King James. It's just easier to read a modern English translation because they're using words the way that I would use them. And so I have an example. Uh, Slang, I think, is an excellent example to use when we think about words and word usage. And so I heard the other day about uh, this phrase that some people use. You might get on Twitter and you might be scrolling through Twitter if you have Twitter. And you might find someone getting in an argument with someone. And then at the end of the argument, someone might say, hey, you look like you're stressed out. You need to go touch some grass. Okay, well, what does that mean? Touch some grass? Well, touch some grass today means to go outside. It means you've been on your computer too long. You need to go outside and get some fresh air and and reset and renormalize and that sort of thing. Now, for those of you that are, I'm not going to say old, but in the older category, in the 70s, touch some grass probably meant something different to you. Uh, So that's probably where your mind went. And that's the whole point I'm trying to make. And that's, that's just like 50 years of, of word usage and phrase usage. So... So when we think about faith, uh, the word faith, if we think about what it means to us today in modern English, uh, I got the dictionary.com definition, and I think that that is incredibly helpful. The first one is confidence or trust in a person or thing. What's cool about this definition is we're going to see that this is basically the biblical definition of faith. That's really interesting. But the second one, this belief that it's not based on proof, man, I'll tell you what, so many people, when they use the word faith, that's what they mean. They mean the second one, belief that is not based on proof. And what we're going to see is that biblical faith is not that. It's not something that's not based on proof. It's based very much on a relationship and on proof. Uh, The third one here is belief in God or in the doctrines or teachings of religion. Uh, the next one is belief in anything, as in a code of ethics, standard of merit, etc. Uh, fifth one is a system of religious belief. And the sixth one is an obligation or, of loyalty or fidelity to a person, promise, engagement. 
this one actually also is a small subset of the biblical definition of faith. Um, so anyway, you can see that some of these are biblically influenced and some of them are not. Uh, but I thought these were is really interesting. So when we use a word like faith, we have to recognize it has a wide meaning. And so what do we mean when we use the word faith? So again, thinking about this second definition, belief that is not based on proof. Uh, so many people that we talk to, uh, that's what they'll say. They'll use the word faith and that's what they'll mean. And yet when we think about our faith or when I think about my faith particularly, I would say that my faith is based on proof. I would say that I've seen God work in my life many times, uh, that he's done things that has helped to strengthen my relationship with him and my resolve to follow uh, the Lord Jesus. And throughout the Bible, we see that God frequently reaches out and he meets people where they are to encourage them in their faith and uh, their belief in him. Uh, one of the greatest examples of that is Gideon in the fleece, right? I mean, he says, I need the fleece to be this way and the ground to be that way. No, I need them flipped now, right? God's working with him to help him build his faith. Uh, Jesus with Thomas, you know, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. And they tell him, hey, Jesus has gotten up. And he's like, no, I'm not going to believe it until I see the prince in his hands and see the holes in his sides. And, and sure enough, Jesus shows up. And the thing that Jesus, he, he doesn't say, hey, you know, you should have blah, 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 blah. The first thing he does is he shows him his hands. He shows him his side. Uh, he works with him. He helps to build his faith. Um, God training Moses with the rod. Moses is uncertain about how things are going to work out, why he should be called to be a prophet. And God says, hey, look, take this rod and throw it down and see what happens. God's working with Moses to show him uh, to build his faith and his trust in God. So God does not expect us to trust him without him showing us something. Uh, he frequently works through giving us proof, giving us things that will help us along the way. He sort of meets us where we are and then helps us move forward. So when we consider uh, thinking about a word as it's used in the Bible, we have a couple of options. Uh, one option is to do a word study, which is to take a word and to go through the Bible and look at every single usage of that word and try to figure out what it means. The problem with that when we're dealing with a word like faith, though, is if we start with a slightly off view of what faith is, and then we go to the Bible and try to categorize things based on maybe this prior framework that we have for what faith is, then we're going to end up finding evidence that supports what we already believe instead of finding what the word actually meant in that day and in that time. And so that's why I really consider using Bible dictionaries or lexicons, because what those are is that's our, our best modern scholarly understanding of what pistis, which is the Greek word for faith, meant at that time. You know, 2,000 years ago, when the New Testament documents were being written, what did that word pistis mean? And that's what our, our greatest re reconstitution or reconstruction of that word is. And so today, like I said, we'll be looking at the word pistis and the related verb, although we'll just be looking at the lexical definitions of the noun form pistis. So the first one I wanted to show you is the BDAG which is uh, essentially viewed in scholarly circles as the standard Greek New Testament dictionary. And I have really stripped down <laughs> what it put in there because if you, if you look at the BDAG, it's, um, it's a lot of uh, Greek and it's a lot of other languages like Latin and all this other stuff. So anyway, I, I stripped it down and I sort of, um, they had broken it down into many like usages and sub-usages and I just simplified it. So there are three basic definitions of pistis, okay? The first one is that which evokes trust and faith. 
the state of being someone in whom confidence can be placed, faithfulness, reliability, fidelity, commitment. The second one is state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. Trust, confidence, faith in the active sense could be understood as believing, and they, they said it usually is in God or in Christ. And then the third one is that which is believed, body of faith, belief, teaching. So we talk about like the faith. Uh, that's like the body of what you believe or uh, the grouping of uh, things that you believe. And so basically what faith is, according to the BDAG, is it's trust. It's trust. Uh, you have uh, the faithfulness component, which makes you trustworthy or worthy of putting trust in. You have the actual relational, like believing, like I believe in you uh, because you're trustworthy uh, or have, I can have trust in you or confidence in you. And then there is that which is believed. Then Thayer's, here's, so here's another dictionary, just to show you I'm not cherry-picking uh, lexicons here. Uh, Thayer's, which is available for free, uh, Blue Letter Bible, this is their main uh, lexicon that they use. Um, so Thayer's, their, his first definition is conviction of the truth of anything belief. And then subcategory sub A, when it relates to God, pistis is the conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ. B, in reference to Christ, it denotes a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. And then C, universally, the religious belief of Christians. And then his second definition is fidelity, faithfulness, the character on which, uh, on who, uh, the character of one who can be relied on. So, um, so again, you still have this idea of trust or, or um, as sort of like underpinning the whole thing. You've got the faithfulness component, which is what allows me to put trust in you because you are faithful, you are reliable. And then there's the actual trust component, which usually, again, is in reference to God or in Christ. Um, and so when I think about word studies or doing word studies or thinking about biblical words, this is something that helps me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a math guy. I'm a nerd. I think about things in graphs. And so I put together this like, chart. This is how I think about it. I don't know if this is helpful for you or not. I'm, ho I'm really hoping it is because I'm presenting it. Uh, but anyway, in the middle here, you have the, what I call the heart of the word. And so if we think about pistis, the heart of the word pistis means to trust. And so that's why the, uh, the, the sort of middle section there that's green says trust. So I guess I should be pointing over here for people on the live stream. It should be somewhere over there. Uh, but anyway, trust is in the middle there And then you have these usages, which I consider on the, on the edges. And what, what I mean by that is trust is behind all the usages. And then these, these little pie components are representing how many usages of each type there are. And this I just split into four equal components. But if I didn't do that, if I did it actually graphically, the in God piece would be huge. The in Christ piece would be huge. And then these other two would be very small pie pieces in terms of the New Testament usage. The vast majority of usages, and this is something that uh, I'll point out that John Shainheit has taught, and I've learned a lot from John Shainheit on the subject through the years, and in fact, we'll refer you to several teachings that he's done on the subject, and his interview with Sean Finnegan on Restitutio, which was interview number 26, for those that, that follow Restitutio, way back in, I think, 2017 or something like that. Anyway, one of the things uh, that, that he says is, um, he talks about how trust, the, the, the meaning of pistis has changed over time. And he's, so he, he goes into all sorts of detail about all this stuff that I'm just sort of scratching the surface on. Uh, but one of the things that he points out, too, is, is that uh, trust normatively, that this pistis, this faith, 
normatively has to have an object. You have to have an object to have trust in or to have faith in. In other words, uh, it doesn't mean anything for us to, to even use the English word trust and not include an object, like I trust in something um, is usually how we use it as well. And the, the Greek is the same way. So anyway, you have in God and in Christ. You have religious belief or the faith. You know, that, that usage gets used. And then, like I said, the faithfulness one gets used as well. And all of these have the underpinning of trust behind them. So um, when we think about trust, you know, if I say, uh, I believe you, in other words, what I'm saying is I trust that what you're saying is true. Or I trust that we have a valid relationship or uh, all those things. And so um, biblical faith is defined as trust. And we, again, see that it's God and Christ. We can trust in God. We can trust in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to trust in something? Uh, I have a chair out here. Let's think about sitting in a chair. Uh, when I approach a chair like this, you know, I don't really think too hard about whether this chair is going to hold me or not. Uh, I've been coming to the synagogue now for a couple of months. I've sat in many chairs in the synagogue. Uh, I'm putting a little bit of weight on the chair right now. It's not moving. It's not buckling. So if I come to sit in this chair, I'm not really concerned that I'm going to fall and hit the ground. You know, I've sat... I've sat many, many times in my life. I know how my muscles coordinate. My brain can do all those things and, and, and work all that out so I can sit in this chair. I'm not really concerned about this chair holding my weight. Uh, I can have great confidence and trust knowing that I can sit in this chair and I'm going to be totally fine. Likewise, many of you probably didn't give second thought to the chairs that you're sitting in uh, here in the synagogue because you know you, you can sit in the chair. You're going to be totally, totally fine. Uh, what I want to point out about that is, from a physics background, I don't have to sit here and think to myself, oh yeah, that's right, the electrons in my body are going to interact with the electrons in the chair, and they're going to repel each other, and I'm going to be held up by that force, you know. I might know more about that, in other words, than you might know about that, because I have a background in physics, uh, but I, I don't have to worry about all that when I sit down. I don't have to know that information, in other words, to have trust in this chair. Similarly, those of you that have a carpentry background, you might, you know, think about, well, are they all the joints done well and are the screws all in the right place or is there something loose or is the glue coming apart at a seam here or seam there, right? But you don't normally do that. Even if you know more about how a chair is constructed or how to build a chair, you're not normally concerned with all the chairs that you come into contact with. You just have trust generally that if a chair is still together and it's still available that you're going to be able to sit down in it. And that's that's a lot like our trust is in, with God. Our trust with God doesn't require that we know everything about God in, in order to have trust in him. We don't have to know how his mind works or how he interacts with us on each and every situation. We just can trust in him knowing what information we do have about him. I do have some information about this chair. Like I said, I've been in the synagogue for months and sat in a whole bunch of different chairs. And so I can have confidence in that chair because I have confidence in the other chairs. And that's how we can approach our trust with God, that we enter into a relationship with God, and over time we learn things about him, and he proves to us his faithfulness, and that relationship continues to grow and grow. Well, I guess we've talked a lot, and we haven't gotten to the Bible yet. We can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be spending some time in Hebrews chapter 11 throughout this series. This is the, the faith chapter in the Bible, <laughs> or one of the heroes of faith chapter. Um, and we're going to be looking at a couple of the characters mentioned here specifically in uh, this chapter in future sermons. 
but I want to talk a little bit about uh, faith or pistis, this trust in a more generalized context uh, this morning. And so when we think about uh, faith or pistis, trust, uh, one of the, the verses that I think of as being really important is Hebrews 11.6. It says, And without faith, pistis, it is impossible to please him or please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So there's several things I want to point out about this verse. And the first one seems pretty obvious. The foundation of trusting in something or having faith in something like, in this case, God, is to believe that he actually exists. I mean, like, that's a very, like, logical thing. We have to believe that God exists in order to have faith. If we don't believe that God exists, we're not going to trust or have confidence in him. Um, and so, um, and, and I think one place we can go with that here in this context is to think about, like, the head knowledge that God exists. Uh, but that's not all that it's talking about here. It's not just simply head knowledge that God exists. That's not all that pistis is because, as we're going to see in James 2 in a little bit, uh, the demons believe that God exists, but they don't have faith. They don't, they don't have pistis. They don't trust in him. Um, so anyway, there's a further point I want to make here, and that is that we have a lens that's very common to all of us. We're all modern Westerners. Uh, especially in the United States, uh, we tend to think about things transactionally. And so we can tend to read this verse and be like, okay, well, I've got to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who, diligent, you know, that, who seek him. And then I, you know, I do this, I get something, right? I do this, I get that. And so uh, some people, in, uh, and I certainly was taught on some level that faith or pistis was somewhat transactional. I fulfill some requirement, I get some sort of benefit out of that. Um, and I think about that in terms of our lives. You know, we work to make money. We need the money to buy the things and, you know, all, all, so on and so on. And so much of our life is transactional. Um, and, and so, you know, I was taught at one point to conceptualize faith as kind of like a, a force that, uh, you know, if I did something a certain way, then I would get certain benefits. Um, and so we might be tempted by reading this verse to think that that, that fits this, um, but I want to point out that in the context of the book of Hebrews, and specifically in this chapter, that doesn't work. We're going to look at a couple of verses here in a moment, here in verse 13 and then at the end of the chapter, that talks about those having faith didn't receive the promises. So it's not transactional. It's not like I do X, I have faith, and then I get Y. I get something specific out of it. What this is actually, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. This is talking about a relationship. Uh, the first step in a relationship is believing that someone exists. Like I had to, in other, in other words, I'm not going to be married to my wife without believing at some point that she existed. I had, to, I had to meet her. I had to meet her before she could become my wife. And this is what it's talking about here. The, the first step we take in our faith journey, in this trust journey, is to meet God. We have to meet God. This doesn't mean that this is transactional. It means it's relational. So then... You know, we have to understand, well, what are these rewards then for those who seek him? If, it's not, if that's not transactional, then what, what does that mean here? Well, the rewards are whatever God says they're going to be. <laughs> that's the answer. It's whatever God says they're going to be. And in this context, the reward that it's specifically talking about is inheriting the kingdom of God. It's talking about the city that is yet to come that Abraham was looking for. Um, and so that is what it's talking about. So in the context, the reward is the kingdom of God. It's eternal life in paradise. 
that's the promise that it's talking about here uh, and the reward that it's talking about here. And of course, this is the greatest and most magnificent reward that we could ever ask for, uh, life in the age to come. And I think, you know, I think even though knowing that that's what the reward is here for those who seek him in verse 6, I think we can apply this more generally to things in our lives. Um, and, in, and when we do that, when we think about God as someone who rewards our trust or confidence in him, I think one of the most important components we always have to remember that's very biblical is um, if he is our father and he knows more than we do, then sometimes we're going to ask for something that he's not going to provide us. And is that because he's bad or evil? No, it's because he's a good father, right? He's a good father. He cares about us. And so part of trusting in God is trusting that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that whatever he decides to bless us with, those are the things that we uh, need and really want and that our perspective is limited. Uh, I think about this as, as a parent myself. Um, there will be times where I'll see something going on with one of my kids. A lot of times it has been Liam since he's the oldest. And uh, so Liam will be doing something, and I know that he wants to do this thing. And this thing is way less than the thing over here that I want him to do. And I know he's going to want to do this thing way more, but I need him to do something in the meantime that he doesn't, he doesn't see the first step. I see the whole five or six steps, and I know we're going to get someplace where he really wants to go. He doesn't want to do this one first step, but I know, I know if he can just get past that one step, everything else is going to be wonderful for him. And so sometimes I have to pull him close to me, and I have to just you know, get, get, give him a hug and share my heart with him and say, buddy, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust that what I have for you is better than what you want for yourself right now? So sometimes I do that. I think a great example of that is, uh, a small treat early in the day versus an ice cream cone later, <laughs> you know, deferred, a deferred gratitude or deferred enjoyment. You know, it's like he sometimes will ask me for a treat, and I'll be like, well, you can have this little treat now, or we could do a big ice cream cone later. You know, we can do that later in the afternoon. And uh, sometimes I'll tell him that, or sometimes I'll just say no to the small treat and then give him the ice cream cone later. just depends. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make, this first point that I'm trying to make about faith this morning, it's really important. Um, with the definition of faith and how it has to have an object and all these things is that faith is not about me. Faith is not about me. It's about him. It's about the one who is trustworthy. And it isn't about God or Christ in an abstract sense. It's not just like believing that they exist and blessings come into my life or something like that. This is relational and it's familial. He is our father. God is our father. And because God is trustworthy, uh, we can have faith in him. We can trust in God. The second point I want to make this morning, and I already mentioned it briefly, is that uh, having faith does not guarantee that we are going to receive anything specific, uh, whether it's even promises that we're going to see. So later here in the chapter, in verse 13, it's talked about a couple different people of faith, um, and including uh, the first section on Abraham. And in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And look, these are thought, it's not just things that they were praying for or hoping for. These are things that were specifically promised to them by God, and they still didn't receive them in their initial lifetimes. But having seen them and greeting them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So uh, they 
they saw that these promises were coming and that that if they had faith and trust in God, that they would eventually receive them, but they died not having received those promises. Let's read the end of the chapter here, the last two verses. It goes through a couple more people and then it, it sort of pans the whole Old Testament, talking about all sorts of different people of faith. Summarizing at the end here, it says, verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so what this means is faith does not mean we're going to receive anything in a specific time frame, even if it's promised by God. Sometimes what God has promised us is something that has to wait until the future. And we saw that with our kingdom series. And again, this is the context. It's talking about the kingdom of God and the future uh, restored earth and things like that. Uh, These people all died in faith having not received these specific promises. Um, I thought it was cool too, uh, apart from this last part of verse 40, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Uh, You know, that's that's talking about uh, when we all are made perfect, uh, in the kingdom. So that's really cool, that, that language there. So I think it's also interesting to point out that we have received, in some sense, more of the promise than they did because we have, the, the Spirit's been poured out, and there's been specific blessings uh, that came at Pentecost and in this period of time in the church age um, that we've received that they didn't even get. <laughs> at least most of them didn't get. Uh, some of them would have had the Spirit in the Old Testament, obviously, uh, but not all of them did. And so uh, I think the, that's what it means when, or that's part of what it means when it says God has provided something better for us. That's part of what that means. Um, anyway, the whole point I'm trying to make is that faith, especially faith in the context of Hebrews 11, it's not transactional, and it doesn't mean that because we fulfill this requirement, uh, then uh, God's going to bless us in a specific way. So trusting in God means that we trust that what he does is best. Um, so should we, what, what can we do? <laughs> what can we do if it's not that? Uh, well, we can ask God in prayer. We should ask God for things. Uh, but if the answer is no, or if it's wait, or whatever the case might be, then that's when we, we just trust in God. We, we trust that he has something better for us. Um, I remember one example of this um, when I went to college. Uh, part of the reason I picked the college I went to was because I received a scholarship. And the scholarship made that particular school affordable. It was a very expensive school. And um, I, I got a call at my house one day from the dean. And the dean was calling uh, for me. And so he, he called and he asked for me. And I was at soccer practice or something. And so my mom answered and she said, well, and this was before for all of you young people. This was before I had a cell phone. This was like three or four months before I got my first cell phone, which, by the way, was at age 18 before I went to college. So... For all you youngins that have phones at like 12 and 13, you know, it's a different world. I know it is. Uh, but anyway, they, they called this thing called a landline, okay? This, this dean called um, a phone called a landline. Uh, my mother didn't know who it was. She answered the phone. Anyway, they had this conversation. So he asked for me, and uh, my mom said, well, he's not here. And instead of saying, can I take a message, my mom was a little bit nosy, and she said, um, you know, can you just talk to me about this, whatever it is? And he sort of laughed, and he said, well, uh, I regret to inform you, Mrs. Barlow, that we have to pull your son's scholarship. And he did that because he was messing with her, because the next breath he said, because we have a better scholarship for him. <laughs> but he got a good laugh out of teasing my mom for her uh, being so brazen as to ask for the message herself. 
And so I've just taken a message for me to call him back or something. I don't know. But the point I'm trying to make is sometimes the answer is no because there's something better for us. And that's what trust means. Uh, let's turn to the book of James, the next book over, James chapter 2. Uh, the third point I want to make about faith is that faith requires actions or works. Um, I knew I grew up in, a, in an environment where it was a little confusing here what we meant by works and what faith meant and, and uh, you know, what, what kind of works are salvific or not or what kind of, you know, it's like all these things we've got to work out in the New Testament. And I just want to point out that... Um, just because we, we have something like trust in God or faith, that doesn't mean that doing works because of that is not a good thing. In fact, it's a very good thing. And so a lot of times when people try to pit like this chapter we're going to read in James with a lot of what Paul says about works, we have to remember that Paul's talking about specific works. He's talking about the works of the law frequently. He's talking about circumcision frequently. He's talking about the food laws frequently. And so it's not that like all works are bad and only like faith is like this, this mystical thing is good and never the two shall touch, right? When we trust in God, this is James's whole point here in this passage, when we trust in God, when we actually have faith, pistis, that means we're going to live our lives a certain way. Our lives are going to look a certain way. It's just a natural result of having this pistis, having this faith. And so this is where we get the faith without works is dead passage here in James chapter 2. And I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll talk about uh, some of this. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the whole point that James is making here is, is that you believe that God exists. The demons believe God exists. Just having this like mental idea that God exists doesn't make you a person of faith because the demons are not people of faith. They don't trust in God. They, never, they didn't end up trusting in God. So uh, trust or faith in God will be manifested by works. It will be manifested in how we walk, how we live. And so, um, again, when we think about what Paul says about faith, pistis, which we'll get to um, Abraham in a couple of weeks, and we're going to talk about how he quotes this exact same uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness section in, in Romans chapter 4. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, but the point is we can reconcile James and what Paul are saying by understanding a little bit more about what faith is. If we understand that it's about trusting in God, just like I can trust in this chair, that means I don't hesitate when I sit down in that chair. It means I don't, 
I don't have this extra mental wrangling about, well, do I need to do this or that with that chair? It's the same thing with our understanding of God. When we trust God, there's going to be a certain way that we live. There's a certain way that we do things. I, do, I don't want to close the teaching without talking about two special cases that everyone is interested in. Let's turn to Romans chapter 10. I want to talk briefly about salvation and healing, or salvation and miracles, especially miraculous healing. Uh, because I feel like this is, these are the things that people care the most about when it comes to faith. And I'm not going to have time today to do a comprehensive theology of salvation or, or a complete theology of uh, healings or miracles. Uh, we don't have time for that today. But I do want to point out, in both of these contexts, we're going to look at um, how tr- this idea of trust, faith as trust, functions in these contexts. That's what, we're just going to be looking at that one little component. I know there are other questions about both these things that I'm going to leave aside for today. Uh, but I just want to point out um, that both of these contexts fit this idea of faith as trust. And so in Romans chapter 10, I want to read just verse 5 and then we'll skip ahead. And I just want to read verse 5 because it ties into what I was saying about James and, and Paul. Uh, verse 5 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And so again, the, the point I'm trying to make here is, is that we think about works in Paul. Oftentimes works means the works of the law. And he's, he's talking about the righteousness based on the law here in verse 5. We're going to skip ahead to verse 8. We're going to talk about the righteousness based on faith, which he, he previews in verse 6. But what does it say? What does the word say? In other words, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because, now this is the, this is the righteousness based on faith here, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's a little bit of a dense passage and we're not going to break it all down. But the point that I'm trying to make here, especially at the end of this passage, is how does someone get saved? They have to hear the message, right? They have to hear the message. That's your first introduction to God is through hearing the gospel message. That's your introduction. So then at some point... We talked about in our series on, on the kingdom, what do we do with the gospel? Well, we repent, we change. So sometimes that repentance has to take place before you believe. You might have to change your view on who Jesus is, like some of these, or who the Messiah was supposed to be, like some of these uh, Jews in the first century had to do. They had to change their viewpoint on who the Messiah, what the Messiah would look like, uh, be crucified specifically. They had to repent before they could believe. But many of us, you know, we get introduced to the gospel, we believe. That's the beginning of our walk in trust with God. We meet God, and then that relationship continues. Uh, but it starts with this confession and believing in your heart, the, a couple of different things. Uh, and that confession is to agree with. It means we agree with the truth, in this case, the truth that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead. 
So again, it's sort of like meta, the, like the end of this passage. It's like, how can we, how can you even get someone to this point if they haven't even heard the message? And how can they hear the message unless you send someone out and all that stuff? Uh, but I want to point out too this other thing, and that is verse 16 starts, but they have not all what? Obeyed the gospel. It's not just about believing the gospel. It's about obeying the gospel. And uh, then the quote, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and that believed is the verb form of the same noun, pistis. So the whole idea of believing is tied to this idea of obedience. There is, with this trust, an implicit assumption that there's going to be specific actions taken uh, through obedience. And so, uh, and we saw that, again, with, repent, with our understanding of the kingdom and repenting. You know, we change and then we continue changing. That's the whole point of receiving the message. So here we see that trust or faith has a place in salvation. That's where we begin our relationship with God is by trusting him and believing certain things about him. And then that's manifested by specific things, specific behaviors, including obedience. Uh, we can turn to Matthew chapter 9. There are uh, many, many passages we could go to when we talk about healing. I like this one. Um, There are plenty of times in the Gospels where something will happen and Jesus will say, uh, your faith has made you whole. And in the old context where I I didn't quite have this understanding of faith as trust, I had one idea around what that meant. And I want to show you that this idea of faith as trust also fits this uh, mold. And so in Matthew chapter 9, we have the woman with the issue of blood. I'm just going to read the middle section. There's a larger context here. You know, he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. Um, Anyway, and then she ends up dying, and he has to raise her from the dead. But in the middle here, there's this crowd, and there's this woman who comes in this crowd to be healed. In, In Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. It's really interesting looking at the context in other gospels, like in Luke, uh, for instance, uh, the, the, the phrase, your faith has made you well, actually happens after the healing took place. So I'm not trying to be dogmatic about the order of operations here and, and all that. Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is, when, when he says, when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, what does that mean? What does it mean when he says your faith has made you well? Um, and I want to give you some background on this woman that I think helps answer that question. Um, the woman had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is. It's not um, entirely clear what that is. But most scholars believe that it had something to do with uh, her women issues, I'll say. And if that is the case, if the scholars are right about that, Uh, then she was ceremonially unclean for this whole period of time. Not only was she ceremonially unclean, anyone who physically touched her was ceremonially unclean. So to to build the picture for you, imagine that you're, you know, you're, you're Jesus, you're in the middle of this huge crowd, there's this woman on the outside of the crowd. If she tries to make her way through the crowd, what's going to happen? She, she's going she's gonna to be touching. Either they're going to be moving away from her, or if they don't know about it, she's going to be touching people and making them ceremonially unclean. So either way, whether they know what she's got or they don't know what she's got, it's bad news. <laughs> it's bad news either way. And so then we get to verse um, 21, and it says, For she said to herself, and the verb tense there, it's in the imperfect tense, which means she kept saying to herself. 
She kept saying, if I just, if I can just touch, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be made well. If I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. You know, she just kept, why is she having to pump herself up? Because in that, you know, in our modern Western culture, it's like, whatever, man, I'm going to get my healing. I'm just going to go through, no, I don't care who, who gets unclean or whatever. I'm going to get my healing, whatever. In that culture, it was very much more community-based, and, and the community good was way elevated over the individual good. And so this woman, seemingly a righteous woman, didn't want to make people unclean, whether they knew about it or not. You know, they, she was trying to figure out a way to do this, and so she, she sort of kept pumping herself up. So what, what about what she said to herself? Uh, what can we learn about that? She said, if I can only touch his garment. So she's placing her faith or trust in someone. Who is it? If she's placing her faith or trust in Jesus. That's the object of her faith. She probably has heard that he's healed other people, that he's gone around and, you know, cast out spirits or whatever. So she knows that he, she can trust this guy. She, she's heard about him. So uh, then we get to what Jesus said. I think it makes sense. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He recognized that she had trust in him to the point where she was willing to go through an incredibly difficult social situation. In other words, the barrier to her taking any action in the situation was incredibly high, and she still took that action, that specific action. So her faith or her trust in Jesus was manifested by the specific action of her walking through that crowd. That's what this is talking about. When Jesus says, your faith made you well, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you came to me, and I was able to do something about it. That's what he's saying. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? So what is faith? As we close this morning, what is faith? Uh, biblical faith is trust in God. It's trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, faith is relying upon their faithfulness. And we've seen a couple things this morning. We've seen that faith is not, it's not a transactional thing. It's not like I, 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 I build up something and then I just expect to receive more blessings from God in an abstract sense or something like that. Now, there are specific actions we can take, and, and sometimes God will show us that. And this woman, for example, she saw a very specific thing that she could do. Uh, when we think about healing more generally, you know, the, the easy thing that we can do or the thing that the Bible talks about all the time is praying for healing. And sometimes God will reveal something to us and we'll be able to act out in a more specific way, like lay hands on someone or, you know, the book of James talks about anointing people with oil and throughout the Bible, I mean, Jesus put mud on a guy's eyes for crying out loud. You know, there, there's so many ways that healing can take place. Often the first thing that we can do is, is go to God and ask him in prayer. Uh, and again, I know this is not a complete theology of healing this morning, but I'm just trying to focus on the faith component of it. And that is that there are specific actions that we can take. And the first action we can always take is, is in prayer. So we've seen that faith is uh, relational. It's about us trusting in someone who is trustworthy. It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about us. It's about him. And it's not this mystical thing that, you know, this force or something or this uh, uh, power positive thinking. It's not any of those things. It, trust is something we all understand very well. You know, we can understand what trust is. We can relate it to physical objects. We can relate it to the people around us. Uh, John Shanehite uses the example of a traveling salesman that I like a lot too. If you listen to some of his stuff, he might bring some of that up. Uh, but we, we know how, what it means to build trust over time. And God works with us to build trust in him over time. And so 
Uh, and then finally, we saw that there are specific actions that our lives should look like if we are people of faith. Uh, the, the demons believe in who God is and that he exists. They know that he exists, uh, but yet they don't have faith because they didn't, they didn't obey. And similarly, we saw uh, that um, obedience and trust, they go hand in hand in Romans 10. So uh, that's what I wanted to share this morning is this idea of faith is not uh, this true faith that we're going to be unpacking and talking about, specifically the examples in Hebrews 11 and the other examples that we pull from the rest of the scriptures. What we're going to see is it's very easy to see that it was relational, that it built over time. Uh, that it was something that led people to do very specific actions. And I'd encourage you to go read Hebrews 11 in the coming weeks and, and look for those patterns of uh, where they trusted God and then they did something specific. And that's, I mean, you'll see that in the pattern of Hebrews 11. It's like, by faith, Abel did this. What does it mean? It means that he knew something about God. He knew what God wanted him to do, and so he did it. And similarly, you see that throughout the whole passage there. And so as we continue to work through this topic of faith, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see uh, these ideas played out through so many examples throughout all of Scripture. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy. We praise you that you are the one that's worthy of arranging our lives around and of true, uh, having true faith, true trust, true belief in you and in your goodness. Uh, we're thankful that you're a Father who loves us and who always wants the best for us, who always uh, cares about us and takes care of us. And we know that sometimes, God, we ask amiss. We, we, we pray for things, and it's not what you want us to have because you have a greater view in mind. You have a higher purpose and a higher goal in mind, a, a greater blessing for us, God. So we thank you for, for unanswered prayers, too, this morning, Father, that you, in your grace and your mercy and in your wisdom, lead us in a better direction. You lead us to a better path. And so, Father, we're thankful for that this morning and every morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.